Welcome to the series finale of Cab Talk, a podcast for the computer-aided biology community. As always, I'm here with your co-host and head of community, Fane Mensa. Hello, 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 David. Last one of the year. Yes, I'm wow. excited. Um, we have basically caught up with a lot of the people that we spoke to over the year, and we're going to hear from them very shortly. A lot has happened this year. And yes, I think indeed. I mean, what, what was your favorite thing that happened this year, Fane? No, joking. <laughs> we all got to work from home. It was great. Yeah, no. It's, it's strange, but I have to say COVID, and not in the sense of COVID happened and then I'm happy, but really the way the industry changed. So I think there's a really big COVID impact in life sciences and especially computer biology. Um, and if I look back into the year, I think my, my favorite thing was really speaking to people and listening how they adapted um, I think our tagline in computer biology is adapting and adopting 21st century tools. And I was just so pleased to speak to so many people who, who really embraced these technologies, but also people that really advanced. Um, Lab Voice, for example, um, uh, doing the Symbiobeta, um, panel discussions, listening to companies like Tetra Science, Riffin, uh, Elemental Machines. Um, it's just the energy that comes out of it. And I think everyone, especially these type of companies, feel like it's a good time now to really push a company yeah. because of COVID. Yeah, so, I think um, it, it did bring about, I, I read an article that just this morning in, uh, in the Guardian newspaper talking about how automation is taking over and that, that well, especially that there was a lot of jobs at risk in manufacturing from it. But mm. in terms of research and development, the adoption of automation is a, it's a completely different thing. It's not so much taking jobs. It's about freeing up scientists time to, to do research and data analysis and so on, but we're seeing it everywhere. And it's definitely pushed science in that same direction to adopt new tools. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And, and not just at, at that perspective also think about the general population think about everyone else around the world that is not a big science geek or is not working in the field they're now looking at science in a completely different way than before yeah they really look at us now and say okay you guys need to be done i'm the efficient now because we need stuff getting done quickly without the bureaucracy without like oh we can't collaborate all those barriers that you normally see uh, which allows effects i'm not saying that still a vaccine developing a vaccine or testing is, is still a laborious process, but just to see how the community comes together and, and really says, okay, let's just bury, bury those barriers and, and work together. I think that, that, is, that is such a powerful statement um, throughout life sciences. Yeah. And what, going back to what you said there about the general public, I think, I mean, there's a little bit of cynicism. Yeah. There are some armchair epidemiologists as we call them, you know, who are mm. talking, trying to, talk about the virus as if it was the same as them commentating on a football match without any expertise really but it's um it's still good that people are adopting critical thinking and thinking in terms of the way the scientists are i think the scientific communication has generally been quite good maybe mm. not from maybe not from politicians specifically but definitely from public health officials who've generally been quite good at explaining things jonathan van tam in the uk has been pretty yeah. good uh, Tony Holohan in Ireland back home has been very good. How have they been in, in the Netherlands? Have you been following it? Yeah, it was quite, it's quite funny that you're bringing this up. Um, I just read an article this morning and they said that, that normally every year in the Netherlands, there's a, the Dutch word of the year. 
And um, the Dutch word of the year is anderhalf meter samenleving, which means one and a half um, living community. So everyone needs to basically get one and a half meters apart from each other, <laughs> which is quite funny. Um, but yeah, like, I think we had a lot. Of, I, I listened to a lot of the Dutch uh, programs and um, they got virologists coming in like every evening, the talk shows, they talk about the fact the, the, the COVID uh, situation, they talk about vaccination. And it's interesting because they all give their idea how things are going. And I think that's also the big problem, well, not the problem, but that's probably also something which is interesting because you've got people's opinion based on their experiences, based on how they work in the field, but then you've also got external factors. Yeah, so it's not always because this is what happened X amount of years ago, so this is what happened in that country. This is how it's basically going to run here. So I think communication is is so, so key. And I think coming back to computer biology, what I realized this year as well is because last year I said, okay, what I wanted to do is want to talk as much about computer biology as possible, want to show examples, really want to speak to the people in there. But what I realized, the communication part of it, and not just in the sense of communicating, but also the networking, the, the building relationships. Um, that's something that I really, this year, that's something that I really enjoyed finding out this year is that because we are a community, there are all other aspects we have to focus on as well. And I think um, we cover quite a, a lot of ground where it comes to like challenges when, when working with different teams, when it comes to like communicating your science with Gemma Milne. And we've got another podcast coming up later on about recruitment. Um, there's so much going on. It's not just digital and physical tools. It's how we cope with it. It's, it's how, we, how we experience it. And communication is, is, a, is a big part of it, I think. I think you can read all of our key takeaways on this in an article on the Computer Aided Biology website. Go to computeratedbiology.com. See our hot takes on all the lessons that we've learned. I think it's almost too much for one podcast. That's why we had to write it down. It's <laughs> a lot. It's true. But David, um, what about yourself? What was what's your highlight um, this year? For me, it's definitely been around the application of AI in, in life science. So okay. it's been growing for a while. Um, but I think now people have been exposed to it a lot more. Uh, and mm. I think in, in terms of even just the scientific population as well, the, like the researchers have now been hearing about it a lot more. So you have groups like Inaplexus, Exientia, who we had on the podcast last week or last mm. month even. And, uh, and we're seeing it now. The, the big news last month was Google's Alpha Fold, which can now predict to an experimental degree yeah. the, how a protein folds, you know, just from amino acid sequence. That's crazy. You know, that's, you know, and that's all comes down to machine learning and building on all of the data that's been gathered in since biology kind of began recording data you know that's really how it is and we're creating more data than ever before and a, the way that we uh, compile and sift through it and structure that and analyze it now is changing everything mm. and it just means that the future is going to become more data driven yeah i think that's you, the big lesson for me yeah absolutely do you think that because this this is a really interesting topic because are we ahead of our time, I'll probably say no. But the thing is that we, we think about AI, we think about machine learning, and I always had the feeling that, oh yeah, it's it's in like the next five years or it's in the next 10 years. Um, oh yeah, we're not there yet. But I have a feeling that it's coming closer and closer and closer. Yeah, You, you named a couple of applications uh, where, where it's been applied to, but can we just 
We're just gonna claim it. I don't. I don't uh, as, can we claim that it is? It is here for us to work on it now. I think it's it's here for better or worse. Um, it's not perfect. It's coming of age. Maybe that's the right phrase. It's coming of age. Thane, are you excited to hear from our previous guests? I think it'll be great to uh, to catch up with them again. We spoke to them throughout the year, and I really want to hear what they've got to say, especially after what happened. Yeah, I think uh, COVID has certainly changed. Most of, most of our, these guests we spoke to in the first half of the year. Yeah. So it'll be really good to hear what they're up to. And I think we're starting off with our very first guest, Keltum Bukra from Lab Genius. Keltum Bukra of Lab Genius was our first ever guest on Cap Talk, back when coronavirus was just a whisper in the wind. Our question, what was your biggest challenge during the pandemic? And what are your plans for the future? The biggest challenge was to to keep stuff moving, uh, keep moving forward as a company, keep hiring people, keep getting new equipment in, not being too disturbed by 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 yeah the, the crisis. And I think it went well. I think it went really really well. I think it went better than we could have expected. Being in such a crisis really uh, forces you to focus on what matters. And this focus at the, the company level, but also at the functional team levels uh, here at LabGenius really like, yeah, pushed us to, to do the job and do what, what, what was really important, you know, to, to get to our practice because we did not have so much time. We knew that, you know, uh, the next day we might not be able to be back in the lab. So, yeah, we just had to do what needed to be done. We rely on the automation team to really do the execution work, what we call the execution work, which is basically... Um, the pure delivering data, you know, uh, as opposed to the developing new assays and finding new new ways of doing things. So the, the exploratory work, and so having uh, having this capability in house and and things protocols ready to be you know to be run, I think was very beneficial. So I remember at the very very in the very very early days of the the crisis, I think uh, at the very beginning of the first lockdown, we're in the middle of uh, the production of a new batch of. Um, candidates, you know, potential drug candidates, and and we didn't have to stop because it was all automated anyway, and and we still had like one or two people uh, coming to the lab uh, here and there. So automation helped us. What was supposed to happen a bit later already happened in terms of uh, automation development, actually. So we're planning on expanding the team and, and the automation capabilities in terms of, of equipment. And uh, we actually did this um, yeah, during the COVID crisis. Uh, so we recently hired um, three more people. So we are today, at the day of today, we are about seven people in the automation team. Uh, whilst we started the year with maybe three, we have a new automation lab now. And uh, in terms of equipment as well, so we, we just scaled up uh, purely in the number of equipment. Um, and then we also invested in a couple of uh, new different machines, which will allow us to run, you know, different different types of assays uh, and hopefully integrate them with our automation. So maybe one more, one more goal to ask to the list would be integration, which is also something that you want to look into when you're doing a lab automation, you know. And we, we have... Uh, we have uh, these robotic arms and we want to make greater use of them. So we want to, you know, use them overnight, use them over the weekends. Um, so this is quite a challenge. Joby Jenkins, product manager at SPT LabTech, was our second guest in episode two. We asked Joby, how has SPT fared during the pandemic as automation has become a necessity? And how did the company used to live demos switch to the online environment? In some senses, lots and lots has changed. 
being in the industry that we are and you know with the products that we've got we've been very kind of central to the to the kind of response if you like the research effort and, and the testing effort you know having automated liquid handling suddenly that went from being a kind of niche industry to something that was on the news um, pretty much constantly so I, I think um, um, manufacturing because there was almost immediate demand for automated liquid handlers and reagent dispensers which is obviously um, that the, you know what we specialize in here at SPG LabTech so it's been a challenge for sure keeping keeping operations going and actually scaling up production I think um, in terms of I guess changes from more from a customer point of view and you know the, the field applications team reacting I think that's another department that, that needs some credit they've been out throughout the world really getting out to customers that needed help particularly setting up testing labs I think that was the you know the clear an immediate need uh, for people installing automated systems for higher throughput testing and um, you know customer interaction point of view we were aware that customers you know were, were also working from home a lot of the labs were closed in the you know during the first lockdown at least in the UK um, and you know we wanted to enable people to see what we had particularly people that were coming to us for the first time you know oh, you guys have got you know reagent dispensers we need something for COVID-19 testing, can you show us what you've got? Now, obviously, doing a traditional demo was, was not really possible in a lot of cases. So we actually um, built a virtual demo room with, with some video equipment and monitors and, you know, space for the instruments and audio equipment. And we're actually able to do virtual demonstrations where we, you know, people dial into a kind of Zoom call like this and actually, you know, see the equipment, interact with an apps person or a product manager, or a salesperson and actually have an interactive live demo, which you know has worked really well. So that that's and that's something that you know we'll we'll keep we'll keep doing. Being able to show people you know live and interactive demonstrations of automation and equipment without you know traveling halfway across the world is is quite a powerful option. So another example of how we've adapted, we actually you know rapidly turned around some you know engineering design changes again around COVID-19, um, our Dragonfly Discovery product up until now could not dispense into deep well plates, um, but there was a need for the RNA extraction step to be done in deep well plates. And now we have a product coming to market that can actually handle the deep well plates and really speed up that RNA extraction process with master mix dispensing, bead dispensing, et cetera, and, and actually save a lot of pipette tips because that was being done either manually or on sort of regular pipette tip based liquid handlers and being able to do that with a reagent dispenser is really frees up valuable liquid handling time and valuable um, pipettes. Marilyn Pavan of Lanzatech, who was our first lockdown podcast back in March, episode three. She described herself as a bridge between the biologists and the automation specialists. We asked how did communication work throughout the pandemic and how did she fare herself planning on starting a PhD and a blog during this difficult time? Well, actually, I think we did a good job uh, in communicating between us um, among the team because everything is virtual now, of course. Uh, we cannot at once attack gather in more than two people in a meeting room, for example. So, and even if I'm talking with only one person, it's advised that we do not do this in person, but via Zoom or Teams. Um, so it's, it's almost, uh, all the communication is almost 
100% virtually. We are using our time and our tools wisely um, to connect with people. Uh, and to be honest, sometimes it's, it's even easier to get everybody in a Zoom meeting than an in-person meeting. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess we did a great job. Um, it didn't affect, it did not affect us uh, as much as we thought it could be. It could be affecting, but um, actually it, it, it's not that, it's not, of course, in person is better always to, to talk with, uh, with someone, but it wasn't a big problem. Yeah, I started my PhD. Now this week in particular is crazy. It's been crazy because it's my qualification next month. Um, my pre-qualification, that's how we call it in Brazil. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm putting a lot of work on it. And actually, if it wasn't, if I was at home, if it was during, this was happening during the lockdown, I would have more time to put on it because one of the bright sides of working from home is that you don't have to worry about uh, puts too much thinking about clothing and food and commuting. So I would take advantage of that time to work in either my work at Lanza Tech or my PhD. Um, so I would say that in this sense, the lockdown only helped. Uh, so this kind of thinking and commuting time, at the end of the day, they, they, they take a toll. Uh, they take part of your time. So that was better actually. Now that we are back in the lab, I work in my PhD during the evenings. And of course, because of it, the blog is suffering. <laughs> so it's, yeah, I'm not, I'm not putting too much uh, effort in blogging than I would love to. And I work on my PhD during the weekends as well. So yeah, for me, having this extra time because I don't have to come to the workplace uh, has, has this bright side that I can invest this time uh, in my work or my PhD or my, my website. Back in May, we spoke to James Redding, a postdoc researcher in T-cells at UCL, and he was telling us about his research and the papers that were due to come out. Did lockdown get in the way? Yeah, so quite atypically for science, most of those things that we intended to come off seem to have uh, bared fruit. So um, yeah, we had the first paper came out in the back end of May, I believe it was in Nature Cancer, looking at T-cell exhaustion in non-small cell lung cancer. Um, and we've had pretty good feedback from that. Um, then shortly afterwards, uh, my colleague Kevin and I um, kind of made this, this discovery, principally Kevin actually, about this new kind of type of, of antigen or target that the immune system goes after in um, low mutational burden cancers. So cancers that may not typically respond to these new drugs, these new immunotherapeutics, um, Kevin kind of had an inkling that there could be a new way in which the immune system targets those cancers that we could exploit for therapy. Um, and another group um, reassuringly found the same thing. And the, the two groups, those guys first uh, in Nature Genetics, I believe it was, um, and then us shortly afterwards in Nature Communications published on that. On top of that, we have a paper which I can't 
officially say, I'd guess, uh, which journal it's gone into, but we were very fortunate in, in that it's been accepted at one of the top tier journals where we've really gone to town, um, powered by, by the bioinformatics prowess of, of my colleague Kevin again. So those three are the, the kind of peer-reviewed articles that, that have, have come out. Um, apart from that, I've had a preprint, which has just gone online in the last couple of weeks. Um, so that was some work from my postdoc. Um, and that's really a new cell therapy platform. So there it was, it was, it was my old uh, former boss and good friend, Tim Tree and I, together with a, a biotech company called Athesis out of uh, Cleveland, Ohio in the States, who kind of began to try and tackle the question of how do we get more cells for cell therapy? And specifically, this is regulatory T cells. And yeah, we've got a patent from that and the preprint's out there. Um, it's on BioArchive. Um, I think the title is something along the lines of um, augmented T-reg cell uh, expansion via adult progenitor cell co-culture. So please, by all means, go and look that up. And we'll be submitting that to uh, a journal for uh, publication under peer review, we hope soon. It sounds like bioinformatics played a big role in that. Did it help get everything published during lockdown? Yes. Oh, my God. Massively. Yeah, hugely. So, um, you know, two or three years ago, the word bioinformatics would really put the frighteners in me. And uh, it's not something that I ever thought that I would have to get to grips with in my lifetime as a bench scientist. Yeah, over time, I think I've realized the necessity of it. And lockdown, as you say, has, has allowed people like myself who, who typically are wet lab scientists to acquire these skills and there are so many resources now and it's becoming incrementally you know, more, more user-friendly and accessible. Tess Korthout, you might remember from our CAB special on COVID, she's a business developer at The Hive, an organization helping companies with open source biomedical informatics solutions. We spoke in our COVID roundtable about open source data and what role that was looking to play monitoring the spread and treatments of COVID-19. We caught up with Tess to ask how she sees open source and how it's been affected by the pandemic and whether she thinks data sharing might be affected by Brexit. To be honest, uh, luckily for us at The Hive, uh, working hasn't changed all that much because we do work internationally a lot. So luckily the, the working from home has, uh, has stayed kind of the same, uh, which is uh, good. Um, and I think in the open source field, what we noticed um, is that just the need has become so much bigger, that there's so much more interest in an understanding of many different stakeholders in, in healthcare and life science data in general, and especially the needs to combine different fields, so really combine medical practices with actually their research. So I think that has been really, really cool. And there's lots of new innovative ways um, yeah, to kind of figure out uh, new ways to, to share data with each other. Um, and also the importance of, of data. Um, I think uh, the interest has really grown. And one of the things that we've been noticing most, I guess, is uh, in a community uh, that is called Odyssey. So this is the observational um, health data uh, community. Uh, so they're really interested in, in observational research. And what they, for example, have done is they organized a hackathon uh, at quite at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, but also later around all things uh, COVID basically. So at the beginning it was, for example, there was an interest for hydroxychloroquine uh, and the safety around it. So that was really cool because they were able to gather so much data in such a short, 
uh, time that would normally have taken years, but because it's observational data that does not require setting up a clinical trial, they could really have results in weeks rather than years, which of course is now at this time really uh, important. And for example, this study has led also to, um, uh, they advised the EMA even, uh, so all the regulatory um, institutes are also very interested, of course, in these kind of rapid use of data. So what we have noticed, because at the Hive, we also work a lot in these pre-competitive initiatives and uh, European Commission funded projects. And we actually did notice that, as, so this is not really sharing healthcare data, but, you know, growing these, establishing these uh, European consortia uh, that together really uh, tackle uh, an issue. I do think uh, this will be a problem because the data sharing is very easy within these consortia and I we do notice that that um, uh, yeah hospitals and research institutes from the UK are having more difficulties you know joining these consortia and this will even uh, get worse but hopefully I do hope that because at the Hive we also work a lot with federated uh, learning and keeping the data at the hospital or research site and really sending the analysis to the data set rather than sending data around. So I do hope that this will be a solution for also uh, UK research institutes and, and hospitals to uh, keep staying involved. Also at our COVID roundtable, we had Davida Denovi at King's College London. We spoke to him in regards his work with OpenCell and their attempt to develop a mobile COVID testing lab utilizing automation. Davida tells us how that project went and what he's up to now. It's been certainly a crazy year for, for everyone. And um, for myself in particular, I, I was really uh, trying at around March uh, to explore where I could possibly help in, in the situation that uh, opened up. And uh, I was very, very fond of uh, the project that was uh, driven by OpenCell and basically uh, the concept is to take a shipping container and turn it into a modular diagnostic lab. This was all a bit of a dream at the time and we, we got an Innovate UK grant together. Uh, we worked uh, towards a prototype that is now operational uh, on the island of Jersey and uh, another one has been uh, shipped uh, and there are several um, threads already moving forward in that direction. So I think we, we have kind of created a bit of a paradigm. I mean, OpenCell has, has changed the paradigm of uh, rather than having a test that gets sent to a laboratory for analysis, you, you basically bring the laboratory for analysis in a very simple form in a shipping container. But, but having automation there and having up to 2,000 tests per day uh, really makes a difference in terms of local uh, communities. And uh, this was a very interesting experience. It was really uh, reminding me of how much I like impact and uh, uh, how sometimes uh, the, the academic uh, research, even when translational, can be far away uh, from, from impact. Uh, and in my own personal uh, trajectory, uh, I was very fortunate to be um, promoted to senior lecturer at King's College London. And immediately afterwards, I have um, received an offer that I, could really, I couldn't really refuse from uh, a company based in um, Babraham near Cambridge. And the company is called Bitbio. The, the bold vision of the company is to produce any cell type using pluripotent stem cells and using a proprietary directory programming method based on uh, OptioX, which is uh, the possibility of, of transducing specific transcription factor. 
we are part of a team that is uh, building a discovery platform to identify the transcription factors that are needed to obtain specific cell types. This can be done at scale. This can be done earlier than uh, with differentiation protocols. Neurons that would take weeks can be, can be derived in four days and they're very scalable. And this offers uh, uh, incredible opportunities for disease modeling and uh, for uh, cell therapy in uh, the long run. One thing I, I'd like to um, take the chance to, to say is that I will yep. be recruiting members for my uh, team. Uh, so the cellular phenotyping team will start recruiting very soon. And I'm really passionate about computer-aided biology because I think it's a community mm -hmm. that really aims to build the, the lab of the future today. Um, we are going to be looking into methods to collate uh, raw images with metadata seamlessly. We're building lab books that write themselves in a sense, and we're using uh, all the possibilities of automation to make uh, a really unique discovery platform. That bit bio sounds very exciting. We hope to hear more in the new year. Looking forward to talking to even more people in the next year. That's a goodbye from us. See you in 2021.